Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The church says, Alleluia. The church says, Alleluia. Christ is risen. Happy Easter to you, to those gathered here uh, in the dawn of resurrection, filled with hope and life in the resurrected Jesus. I want to invite you now to hear the word of the Lord that picks up right from that place where Grant has read for us uh, in John chapter 20. I want to begin reading right at verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord, resurrection day. Let's bow together and give thanks. God, for this, the gift of your word on this Easter morning that brings to us light and life in the midst of all that surrounds us, we give you our thanks. We declare with glad hearts our gratitude. We pray that your word would be living and active and present among us, that by your word and by your spirit, you might raise us to new life, even though we live a much, amidst much that presses in against it. Bless the reading of your word. Bless our dwelling within it today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And the church says, Alleluia. It's early on the first day of the week. 
How many of you are early risers? I, I'm proud of the rest of you who didn't fudge on that one. Early risers. It's early on the first day of the week, and it's still dark. The morning sun has not split the night sky yet. It's early on the first day of the week, and it's still dark because isn't it true that the road to resurrection always begins in the dark? And while it was still dark, Mary goes to the tomb, and when she gets there, she noticed that something is not quite right. Someone has apparently messed with the tomb. Something is out of place. So what does Mary do? Did you notice? She takes off running. She takes off running, and from that moment forward in the story, as John tells it, of Easter morning, there's a whole lot of running going on. Everyone's running. First, Mary runs back to find the disciples. She finds Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loves. That's the way it's written in the Gospel of John. Many people believe, I think, it is John that is being referred to here. She finds Peter and she finds John, the other disciples, the disciple who Jesus loves, and she tells them what she's seen. Not that she believes, but just that she knows that something's out of order, out of the natural order of things. She takes off running in the pre-dawn darkness to tell the others, and when she tells Peter and the other disciples, guess what? They take off running too, in a mad dash, back towards the tomb, both of them, almost like they're running against each other, Peter and the other disciples. It's a sprint to see who can get there first. I like to imagine, it doesn't say this, that Peter pulls out ahead because, you know, he's the ambitious one. He starts out and John says, uh-uh, you're not going without me, and he takes off running as fast as he can. And he catches up to Peter, and then he starts to pull ahead of Peter, and then Peter tries to hang in there with him, but he can't because John's just faster. John sprints forward on the way to the tomb, and it's John who gets to the tomb first, stops, observes what's there, and then here comes Peter trailing behind, but sprints right past him into the tomb. There's all of this running going on that Easter morning. There's Mary running back from the tomb. There's Peter and the other disciple running towards the tomb, sprinting back and forth. Why all the running on Easter morning? It's exhausting, really. How many of you are runners? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot fewer hands going on. <laughs> so let me tip you off to as to where this is going today. I'm going to ask how many of you are runners, and every one of you are going to raise your hand. How many of you are runners? Yeah, that's more like it. That's more like it. I suspect that Mary thought the tomb was an even greater tragedy. It's not that Mary thinks that, oh, the stone's been moved. Jesus is alive. In fact, she says something that seems to indicate something to the contrary is if the finality of watching him take his last breath, be taken down from the cross, 
be placed in the tomb. The stone sealing the tomb isn't enough. Now, someone has taken the body of Jesus. I suspect that Mary runs because it's an even greater tragedy. And I get that, don't you? Her first thought is the logical conclusion of the terrible, terrifying reality of the finality of death. Christ crucified, we say. Christ buried, period. It's the terrible reality of Jesus' death and the logical conclusion that sets her off running. If you've seen death up close, as I suspect many of you have, Friday looms so large that it's hard to imagine Resurrection Sunday. It's hard to imagine anything other than the logical consequence of the hegemony of death. That word simply means that death exerts its influence over everything. Friday looms so large, the cross of Jesus so final, so devastating, filled with so much despair that it's difficult to imagine Resurrection Sunday. Annie Dillard, some of you may have heard the writings of Annie Dillard. If not, let me introduce you to the writings of Annie Dillard. She writes in her novel, The Living. She describes this scene. She says, Hugh stood with Stiff Lulu and Supple Bert at the graveside. The Nookshacks stood together at the graveside with their preacher. Before the funeral, in mourning for his father, they shrieked and pounded on boards, and at last, big-faced Norval Taws read scripture and prayed. O oh, death, where is thy sting? And Norval Taws' tiny eyes glittered on Hugh. And Hugh thought to himself, just about everywhere, since you asked. Just about everywhere. And it's true. We have stood in enough cemeteries, laid flowers on enough caskets, mourned death come too soon enough times that we know what it is to run with Mary in despair. Friday looms large. The darkness seems too deep to imagine Sunday. Why did they run? Peter and the other disciple. Why did they run? Maybe the race between the two of them back to the tomb is some sort of contest between faith and doubt. Even though they don't understand, they're up and down the road in a sprint. Verse 8 says that he, he moved 
toward the tomb. And when he reached the tomb, he saw and believed. John did. And then verse 9 says, almost in the same instance, they still did not understand. You hear that? They reached the tomb in a mad dash, in a sprint, back towards the tomb. And they saw and believed. And then they did not understand. Maybe all the running back and forth for Peter and the other disciple is that contest between faith, the desire to believe, the willingness to believe, and doubt. I'm not sure. And perhaps they're running names our own experience caught between the reality of everything we see and experience around us and and knowing the promise of something over against it we're caught between the two belief and confusion you know, the text doesn't say exactly, not directly, why they ran. We can make inferences. It doesn't say directly. But what it does say, what it does present, is this contrast. There is running, all this running, back and forth, back and forth. And then everything, did you notice, everything slows down. Comes to a stop. The disciples head back home, back to where they were staying, in the space between fragile belief and struggling to understand. They head back home at a different pace than the one they took to get there. And then there's Mary, just Mary, left outside the tomb. The other disciples returned home, and there's just Mary there. And all the rushing and the running comes to a stop. And there she is, weeping outside the tomb. She is crying. It's the thing about crying. It's as if it's an internal signal, our body's telling us to stop. You think about it. Everything slows down with the tears. We stop. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. To cry is to stop, to find life ground to a halt. Mary is standing there weeping, and through her tears, in that moment of her weeping, she sees two angels. Why are you crying? They ask her. They've taken the Lord, and I don't know where they put him, she says for the second time. The first time, when she ran back to the disciples, she's out of breath. She sprinted all the way to find them where they are, and she stops, and they say, What is it, Mary? And she says, They've taken the Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. And then after all the running stops, and she's left alone there at the tomb, and she's weeping, and through her tears... She sees the angels, the one at the head, one at the foot, and they ask her, why are you crying? And she says again, they've taken him, and I don't know where they've put him. 
And Mary turns and she sees another. It's Jesus who's standing there, only she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he is the gardener. Until Jesus says her name, Mary, and in an instant, she knows who he is. She sees. Rabboni! Teacher! She sees. She believes. Look, I don't know why or what brought you here today? To this place, to this point in your life, to this service. It's Easter Sunday. Maybe you came to visit family. Maybe you have family visiting. Maybe if there's one Sunday that you think, I should probably not miss church today. It was today, and so you're here. Maybe you're back from college. I don't know. Why or what brought you here today? But here's what I do know. I know how you got here. You came here as part of the long, hard sprint. You came here running. And I'm not just talking about demanding jobs and busy schedules and hectic lifestyles and all of that that we usually think of when we think about how we're just running and we can't get off the treadmill and if I could just catch my breath, I'm not just talking about that, although that's true as well. I think one of the great illusions of our day is that if we could just run faster, it would buy us more time. You know, back in the 1960s, I saw this a while ago, back in the 1960s they did a study and this analysis that said because of advances in technology, with all of the advances in technology that were beginning to unfold, that it would mean people would have more time. And the big issue would be what to do with all the extra time. Maybe you could work less. Maybe you could retire earlier. That's what everyone was trying to figure out. This will be great. You laughed, didn't you? <laughs> Because all of the advances in technology have only sped things up. We're running faster and faster and faster. Our world has become the world of the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland's world. Where Alice says, now you see, it takes all the running you can do just to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you've got to run at least twice as fast. And off we go. But I'm not just talking about our hurried and hectic lives and how maybe Mary's moment at the tomb invites us to slow down a bit. Some of our running is nothing other than a running from the God of resurrection. Maybe you're here this morning going through the motions but your heart is just not there. And if that's so, I want to say that's okay. Because for a lot of us, death has wounded us too many times. A loss, a wound, a betrayal, 
a promise unkept, one that we made or someone made to us. Death looms large and has wounded us one too many times. So we run from the possibility of resurrection because we've hoped and been hurt too many times before. And maybe one way of interpreting our own lives is to say we do everything we can to keep ourselves busy, to distract us from the reality of a death that looms way too large. We're running from resurrection. And I want to say that I, perhaps it's true that if you were to slow down enough, the dam would break and the weeping would be overwhelming and so you just keep running. In other words, you don't want to let yourself quite go there to the place where we might recognize resurrection and life and hope. Here's the good news. Right alongside Mary, if we can bring ourselves in this moment still enough, quiet enough, slow down enough, through the tears enough. You may just hear your name called. And it is the deepest longing, the deepest desire of your heart and my heart to hear your name called by the one who created you and loved you and embraces you no matter what. Amen. It's the deepest longing of your heart and of my heart to hear your name called, which means to be known and seen and loved. If we could just slow ourselves down enough against the hegemony of death and the dark reality of what seems to be its permanence. To hear through our own fragile, broken weeping, the resurrected Jesus call our name. It is life. And it is hope. And if Easter means anything, it means to arrive at this moment and be still again. And to own our own frailty, fragility, our own fear of the reality of death and no life. It's hard to separate the cross on Friday from the tomb on Sunday, unless, of course, you allow the cross on Friday to be the last part of the story. I've mentioned this before. Dearest friend and mentor, Charlie Cyber, who often said, and increasingly so as he reached near the end of his own life way too soon, said, the hardest things 
The darkest things are not the final things. The story does not end on Friday. And maybe this gathering on Easter Sunday is important for you and it's important for me because as we make our way through life and the calendar moves forward and we move through the year, we get stuck right there at Friday. In all its splendor, the story of Jesus says that the hardest things, the darkest things, the deepest wounds inflicted upon you, the deepest wounds that you've inflicted on someone else, are not the final things, are not the last things. We live freely and with joy and filled with hope because Friday is not the end of the story. Sunday is. Death does not have the final word. Life does. And we do not need to live in fear. Inside of you and inside of me is this wound up, tight, anxious fear that somehow Maybe it's true that in the end, death wins. Sunday morning, Easter morning, with Mary, early in the morning while it's still dark, running to the tomb, we sit still to see, perhaps for the first time, that life has not been overcome by death. And if you've heard that story before, but you're kind of teetering between, like Peter and the other disciple, between seeing and understanding. Our gatherings in this place around the Word of God and around the table of God are nothing less than a declaration that though all the evidence is to the contrary, death has not won. Life has won. And if that's true, then as those who follow Jesus, we need not be the most anxious, wound up, uptight people in the world, afraid of our own future. We can live freely. We can speak hope into despair, light into darkness, love in a world filled with animosity. We can speak peace against discord. We can speak unity where the world seems fractured. We can speak life over death. So the good news this morning, we declare, is Christ crucified? The good news we declared this morning, is Christ buried? And the good news we declare this morning is Christ risen. And the church says together. Hallelujah. And the church says together. Hallelujah. And even as the church moves toward the table of the Lord, where we take the body of Christ broken and given, we receive the cup of salvation, the blood of Christ poured out for the sake of the world, for our own sake. 
we can say together with one voice, Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen. The church can declare together with one voice, Alleluia, Alleluia, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed.